When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, so uh, thanks everyone for coming to uh, the live Halloween panel, genre filmmaker panel. Does that make sense? Do you guys know what genre film is? It's like horror, but then maybe if your movie's not that scary, we call it a genre film. Yeah, thriller, sci-fi, it's all in there. Yeah, but thank you for coming. We're sponsored by many people tonight, which means they gave us stuff for free. Like uh, Eben and Blake back there, the, the owners of Sawhorse. And I don't know if Monica's here, but she was uh, instrumental in, in helping us set this up. Um, Thanks, Monica. Thank you, Monica. Um, and, and the rest of the team at Sawhorse, they are a production company, and they do post. And if you ever want to see a cool reel, check their site about once a year. Usually update it, sawhorsela.com. They just bought this house and made this backyard and uh, had nothing to do with it until we asked them if we could do a, a live show. And then we have Fresh Brothers Pizza. They gave us all this pizza for free for no reason. So thank you, Fresh Brothers. We appreciate it. I actually, Fresh Brothers has a billboard on like Hollywood right off of the exit that they, it's always very charming to me. They do a matzo pizza every year. Oh, thank you. Thank Anyone you. Anyone know the, the, the Fresh Brothers billboard? Thank you for the inclusion. inclusion. There you go. Thank you, Blake. Thank you, Blake. <laughs> Um, Shout out to that billboard. Anyone else to thank? Oh, Black Magic. They told us we can give away some free things today. That's right. So we're going to give away uh, some studio licenses and a Black Magic camera at the end of this. Uh, and then uh, thank you to our panel. We're going to introduce them to you. Kicking it off with Leroy Coons. Pardon me. His film is Deliver Us. Lee is a multi-instrumentalist, a film school dropout, and a Cicerone, which is like a sommelier but for beer. Um, and so it was very generous that he picked out all of the beers we'll be drinking tonight. Um, his current feature, <laughs> Deliver Us, is in theater, or was recently in theaters, and now is available on VOD. Woo. Thanks, Leroy. His name is Lee Space Roy, but he goes by Leroy, correct? Yes. Awesome. Okay, next, she hails from a place that some people consider high in the middle and round on both ends. Yes, Ohio. And according to her bio, she's been a fan of horror since the age of 10. She recently made the feature film Satanic Panic and has directed for the Hulu show Into the Dark. She's repped at UTA, which I mentioned, so you all know she's legit. Before slaying the horror genre, she was the executive assistant to three people I've never heard of. Yvonne Reitman, Jude Apatou, and Jason Bloom. Allegedly the daughter of uh, Johann Starskusi and Emilia Dostoevsky, she is Chelsea Stardust. And next, let's see, I wrote this next one too. 
It only gets worse from here, guys. Um, this next guest immigrated to the U.S. from an unspecified country, according to IMDb, at the age of 12, which my people refer to as bat mitzvah age. She's been in so many movies and TV shows, it's almost like she's trying too hard. Recurring on NCIS, The Rookie, and The L Word, which for the life of me, I don't know which word they're referring to. She also portrayed Ophelia Salazar on Fear the Walking Dead and apparently convinced them to set it in L.A. so that her commute would be easy. She also has a skyrocketing horror directing career with a horror short, The Bridge, based on the popular game, I assume, uh, which is making the festival circuit and is taking her next horror feature out on the town as soon as this little strikey thing is over. Oddly enough, she drives a Subaru. She is Mercedes Mason. <laughs> Finally, we've got Jim Cummings. Uh, Move over, John Carpenter. There's a new master of horror in town. It's Jim. Uh, Jim came to prominence with his Sundance-winning short film, Thunder Road, which was later adapted into a self-distributed uh, feature of the same title and an indomitable Twitter presence. He followed that X, up with a hit X. horror... X, pardon me. Uh, he followed that hit up with horror comedy, Wolf of Snow Hollow. Please give it up for everyone's favorite cult leader, Jim Cummings. And this is Jim's third time on the show, right? Or fourth time? Third. Third. Oh, let me turn your mic on. Thanks. I think that's the third time I've made the cult leader joke, too. Third, yeah. Thank our wives, some of who are here. If, you, if you're one of our wives, raise your hand. That's Kara Kaplan. SAG, AFTRA, available from bookings now. So we thought we'd structure this. We're going to have kind of talk a little bit about the beginning of your career, how you get started. We'll talk a little bit about the craft, what you do once you're in it, and then a little bit about the future. So our first question, yeah, to the panelists is... Set us up a little bit. Yeah, like tell us about, uh, yeah, just how you broke in nice and tight. Uh, so <laughs> I was at a USC film school, and uh, I decided to drop out. I, I loved being there, but uh, it's so expensive. And I'm I realized, still paying for it. Yes. And so talk about breaking in. I usually tell people in film school that they maybe shouldn't go to film school. They should use that money to either make a film or be able to support themselves when they get out to L.A. or New York, wherever they're going to go, so they can, uh, you know, have a chance at the career. You um, went undergrad or grad? Uh, undergrad. Okay. And so uh, I made, uh, he's actually one of my best friends now, but we dropped out together. And he's a DP. He just did uh, actually season two of Loki and also did my film just now. And uh, we used our tuition to uh, fund like a ultra low budget movie and uh, kind of broke us in, got hooked up with an agent. Um, and then from there. Wait, how did your, what, what was the name of the movie? It was called The Beer Tell. The my beer. love of beer, yeah. Oh, and how did it, how did that break you in? Did it premiere at like a, a film festival or get distribution or? So uh, it got distribution. It did really well. But uh, I got signed by CAA and Brillstein right out of it. And they just, they're like, wanted to make me an actor and was like, just pretending to support the film career to try and do that. Uh, so uh, I think the biggest thing, I guess, that I would give uh, outside of that is to get excited about other people's projects, especially when you're coming up. You have a lot of acquaintances, you have a lot of people, and then you help each other. Um, don't really take like a competitive mindset to it. Um, and uh, yeah, the perseverance is probably the biggest. Cool. 
Can I ask an awkward question? Yes, of course. Those people that you signed with right away, are you still with them? Uh, I'm not, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And why did you decide to part ways? Um, to be honest, I, I, I learned that I probably should have just actually committed and done the acting and not have been so reluctant of making the film career happen because I realized that I could have helped myself more if I had just done it. But, you know, lesson learned. Yeah, I feel like that's a thing we hear a lot. Right. You know, like the, the that first relationship, maybe it works out great, but maybe it, I mean, I had a hunch that it didn't work out because it seemed like maybe your uh, ambitions didn't align. Exactly. Right. Like they were trying to force you into something that you weren't. Yeah. Totally and I into. mean, it was my fault. I probably should have. That's just not true. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just done it. True. No. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad what it did is because. Uh, I was able to just focus on the filmmaking and that's always what I planned to do in the writing and I, I didn't ever get, you know, trapped in that. But, you know, it would have helped. <laughs> well, here you are, Lee, so, Libra. Cool. Chelsea, what's your, I mean, you've been, you, you had kind of a long path to yeah. directing. Yeah, um, I also went to film school. Um, I went to undergrad film school in Ohio and I did finish film school because my parents wouldn't let me do anything else but finish film school, um, which was actually a great experience for me. But I do tell a lot of people not to go to grad film school. Undergrad, I'd recommend. But for grad, I was like, no, just go make a movie. Same same thing. The best part that I, best thing I took out of film school was um, my DP I went to film school with. So we went to college together and he, he's still my DP to this day. Um, but uh, yeah, so after film school, I moved out here. I, I did an internship while I was there, which led me to LA and then I went back and finished my degree. Um, but that sort of crystallized why I wanted to come here as opposed to New York. Because at film school, they kind of want you to starve for your art in a basement in New York City and I didn't really want to do that. I wanted sunshine and waves and things like that, which I obviously um, didn't have as much in Gray, Ohio. But um, moved out here with a job, um, lucky enough, as an assistant to, we were talking about, um, I was at Montecito Picture Company working, that's Ivan Reitman's company, RIP, and uh, so I was an assistant for quite a few years. I was there for two years. Then I worked for Judd Apatow for two years as one of his assistants. And then I worked for Jason Blum for four years as his assistant. And basically, I was an assistant for about 10 years to various people. There were a couple people after. Um, I'm curious. And when you were, when you were working with those people who are obviously like kind of icons in the film industry, did you see them also like trying to get movies and that weren't getting made like did you see them struggle with those things? And what are like some some things you saw them do that got people excited to, yeah. to make things? So when I started at Montecito, I was there during production of one movie, but it was um, during the first writer's strike. So things were a little tougher at that time. Um, but then, you know, when I was working with... Uh, working for Judd, I was there doing Funny People and Get Into the Greek and Bridesmaids. So they were kind of cranking movies out. Um, there were a couple things that they were working on that happened after my time, like Girls and This is 40. Um, but because of Judd's relationship with Universal, I think that helped <laughs> quite a bit. Um, and 
then Jason was kind of the opposite side of that because he was, you know, his only credit when I started working for him um, as full producer was Paranormal Activity. So uh, that, you know, trying to get movies made, they were trying to get things made. They had just made the first Insidious when I started. And then they were just, they had this amazing low budget model. And I was there for 27 movies and it was insane. And a year and a half. And a, yeah, yeah. In four years, though, that's like a lot of movies. That's a lot of movies. Um, and, you know, almost everything that they were working on got made. Um, but, but we're also talking about, you know, a lower budget space. So not to say that it's easier because there's never enough money and never enough days and all of that. But um, and they were trying to they were sort of figuring out what works, what doesn't work. Most of the movies were shot in L.A. except for Sinister. Um, so that was incredible because not a lot of stuff shoots here so much anymore. Um, but I just continued to learn from all of these directors and I assisted a TV director, a commercial director. I shadowed Adam Robitel on Insidious 4. I just wanted to learn as much as possible. Um, all the while sending scripts to my friend who worked at Blumhouse to be like, okay, will you make this? Can we make this? How about this movie? This movie? Um, and then finally they greenlit All That We Destroy, which is my into the dark um, movie. But I mean, perseverance, just, you know, agreeing with what you said about, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, persisting. And uh, anytime I would take a meeting um, with someone to talk about projects, any company, I would try to, I would obviously like research them because you always want to know who you're meeting with. Um, and I made a point to talk about their projects and less about myself, <laughs> the opposite of what I'm doing now, but um, getting them to talk about what they were looking for and what they were passionate about, but also asking, what are you watching right now that you love? What are you reading right now that you love? To get a taste of their taste and sensibilities. Um, That's a great, but, a great piece of advice. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. worked. It's worked well. Can I, can I ask you a question? Most of what I know about how Blumhouse works is from one episode of the town or whatever show, yeah. whatever podcast it was. Um, it's but, a good episode, guys. But they, uh, right? You like Jason was making movies with like kind of A-list celebrities by giving them like a piece of the back end, right? Mm -hmm. And they were like kind of six million dollar ish budgets, right? Oh well, this was before that. <laughs> My time was like the budgets weren't quite that big yet. Yeah, we're in like there to five probably playing in that sandbox. But you know, he was again, talking about relationships you make along the way, like Ethan Hawke is in Sinister because of the relationship he has with Jason. And like they've been, he's like, Jason's like the godfather to his children, to Ethan's children. So they're like, they have a close relationship. I guess I was going to ask about that because I think a lot of people hear that story and they're like, oh, I'll just offer back into, you know, Julia Roberts and she'll be in my horror film, my $1 million <laughs> horror film. And it like, is, is that what it was that Jason just had such a deep relationship with all these like network like, it's not as easy as, like, offering back-end on a horror film to an actor to get them to be in your movie, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, he... A lot of the people you see in those movies, back-end, back is, is a reason. And also, they're making movies for a small amount of money that are having these great profits. So that was attractive to people. And shooting something in L.A. for people who live here is very attractive. Um, and Ethan uh, lives in New York, so they shot that in New York. Um, and a shoot that was you know, done in 25 to 30 days. You don't have to, don't have to leave the comfort of your own <laughs> house. You can go to, go to bed in your own, go to sleep in your own bed at night. 
that's attractive to a lot of actors. And so, um, and they would use the same kind of crew over and over again. So it was very much a family environment, which is something I took with me when I made my own movies is really, you know, my crew for my first movie was my crew who I've done seven short films and they all worked on those short films. So I was like, let's do this. And I promise you there will be something bigger. Um, and I was able to sort of reward them with that. So another little thing that helps. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, less on the production side, but more on as you're assisting, are there other things that you absorbed through osmosis, things you observed that you carried forward with your career? Oh yeah, Assist, this this industry would collapse if it wasn't for assistance. We hear everything, <laughs> we read everything, we know all the secrets. Um, but uh, I, I had quite the insight on what producers want to protect directors from, um, and also for how. Instance. Oh my gosh, um, any sort of red alert thing that's happening on set, like we couldn't get mm -hmm. the dog we needed. They don't want like, to stress them out. Is what yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they're able to sort of navigate that um, note, how, how to give notes, how to, t how to receive notes, how to give notes. Um, and then the whole, like the whole development process. And then also all the things you kind of need to know with production, insurance, all of that stuff that is, you don't ever want to think about as a director, but is good knowledge to have. Um, and I learned very organized <laughs> type A, um, which made me a great assistant. And I use all of those things when directing. Um, and, you know, how, how important pre-pro is, um, how the editor and the writer are the mo two most underrated positions in any movie. Um, those sort of learning those things along the way. That's awesome. There's a lot. <laughs> I think like what piece of advice that you gave, maybe not intentionally, but that I, I haven't heard on our podcast links before that's super valuable is this like shooting in LA thing. Like I think a lot of people are like, Oh, I'm going to go to my hometown in Ohio and shoot, you know, my movie. Cause I get everything for free and I'm going to get an actor to come be in it. And everyone turns you down and you, people don't realize it's because like you're making them fly to, to Ohio, Ohio for yeah. a week. Yeah. But if you say like, Hey, you can, we're going to shoot in LA. You can see your kids at night and sleep in your own bed and be with your family and do your weekend thing. It's much more appealing um, and it, I don't know, something I always like you can I always think you get better crew and better cast in L.A. because people want to just be comfortable in their lives. Um, but so Mercedes, you obviously have had like a long acting career. You've been directing lately. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you learned as an actor and like why you made the transition? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm definitely in Chelsea's boat in the sense of knowledge is power. And I've. I moved to LA um, from Chicago, I, from New York actually. Um, I was working in the fashion industry and I thought I was gonna go that whole route. I realized that was miserable and I enjoy eating. So I moved to LA <laughs> and um, I've always wanted to be an actress, but I've, I've, I'm so type A that the concept of being a director of sort of running the ship, if you will, has always been in the back of my head. And I knew from day one, um, the more I knew about every nuance of this industry, the better it would be. So luck. It's luck that I got the acting gigs that I got. And from day one, I was always the weirdo stalker who was behind you know, the cameras. I'd be shadowing the director. I'd be, what is the DP doing? What cameras are he using? What language is he using? Um, I just wanted to know all the ins and outs because I was sort of setting myself up for one day I will be there. Um, and so as I was... 
uh, working as an actress, that's that was my bread and butter. I enjoyed it so much. But at the same time, I was full, fully aware that, one, I was making connections, which I think, as we all know in this town, that's everything. And two, and it's such a crazy concept, uh, and I think people have come to finally appreciate this, but kindness. What a fucking crazy con Sorry, I can't swear. What an amazing concept. To this day, you make friends just by being kind and being normal that people want to help you. <laughs> so once I wrote my things, um, it, it became one of those things where I was like, listen, I need a DP. Can you help me out? Sure. Let me call this person, that person. And it was set up. Um, I need this. I need that. And so people just, again, shoot in LA. They come to you and they want to help. One, because you're a friend or you've never sort of crossed them in any way. Um, and two, because half the time they've been there, right? Like people know you give back. And when you're kind and when you want to be a good person in this industry and help out, I will forever give back. I will forever be the one if somebody comes to me and they're like, hey, can you be my short? Yes, if I can, if it's not, if it's not out of town and I can go to bed in my, you know, uh, in my own bed and see my kids at night, I will help you out. Um, that, that was one of the biggest sort of learning things. And like you said, I didn't go to film school, but shooting my sh two shorts um, and of course, right when uh, the pandemic happened. So they're like, yeah, you got into all these festivals and we're not doing anything about that. Um, that was the best film school I've ever had. How to raise the money, what to do with every nuance of every, you know, if the DP called in sick, we had three different, um, for one of them, we had three different locations that every time it was like a, a joke. The first time it got rained out, so much so that we thought our equipment was destroyed. The second time there was a bear attack. <laughs> the third time there was a fire because there was a homeless encampment. So you just learn, you learn how to sort of navigate right and put out fires and i think this town is all about putting out fires if you can keep a clear head if you have the connections if you have the wherewithal and the tenacity you will make it just put your head down and go an and honest question like do you think that your making your shorts was a better film school than having been like spent hundreds of days on set as an actor i think it's a great combination of both i mean look the film set uh, when I was shooting, that was finally my thing, right? Like I was steering the ship. So that's very different than being an actor, being told where to be, when to be. And, you know, you don't ever want to step on somebody's toes. As much as I was shadowing, I don't want to be like, hi, me again, you know? So you, you kind of have to navigate this uh, balance of don't annoy people, but learn as much as you can. Um, and then also be open to things. Like right now, just because of what's happening in the world, I'm doing a documentary, and that in itself is opening all these new doors. That's making you, um, making me at least, understand so many other aspects of how to enter this industry and have things to offer. So when I do take meetings, hey, what are you working on? I've got five pilots, here's my script, here's the short that I shot, here's that one, here's the awards that it won, and also we're doing this documentary. So you're constantly, you make them feel like, I'm an asset, I don't, I don't have to grovel. It's not if it's not you, someone else will pick me up. And what was the most surprising thing as a director that you didn't realize, like as an actor? Is there anything that you as an actor like, oh, it's this thing is so easy. The directors are just being annoying. But when as a director, you realized working with children, <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. Um, I had no idea the rules, the schooling, the amount of hours you can use. There's so many tiny little nuances that you, I mean, you're always running against the clock. And when you have that extra 
sorry, we got five minutes. I mean, that's that's the stress. I do that later <laughs> when you're Kubrick. Do it then. Then then work with kids and, and animals that you cannot control. Um, that was one of the biggest things. And also, I have to say, I think you made the right decision, Leroy, as an act, maybe as an actress. I don't know if this is a female male thing, but I can't tell you how many times they've seen you in something or they recognize you or they just know you're an actress and all of a sudden you're not taken seriously. So I'd be telling my, you know, my DP, I need the shot or I need this or my camera guy. And he's like, no, I don't think that's good. Okay. Uh, I don't have time to explain. I just, I need, please help me help. This is what I need. What else can you give me then? So, you know, you kind of have to fight the battles politely. Yeah. <laughs> and then scream into pillows at night and cry in the shower. I listened to this story where a, the DP of Mad Men, who would always get so annoyed by directors that want to do these like crazy shots on Mad Men, he's like, this is not the show. We don't do the mad, we know how to shoot the show. Stop trying to reinvent it. He got to direct a few episodes and he, realized like oh the only thing that makes me as a director unique that's all you get to do yeah, yeah. Is, is try to break the mold a little bit and come up with some shot that the dp will not want to do but is going to make this your episode you know um so jim you you're famously yeah. kind of are a little anti-establishment there you yeah go. uh the question is how do you break in yeah. Uh, how did yeah. I do it, or how yeah. should others now in the Ooh. modern world? Uh, let's let's hear both. I'll actually, do, okay. Yeah, yeah I want to make sure that that because like that that's an important thing for everybody that's listening and everybody here is like it's one thing for me to tell you our story, but it's also like we've gone through a pandemic and also two writer strikes since, and it's a very different landscape. So I want to make sure that it's modern answers for people who are actually needing help. Um, I'm very lucky. I won Sundance in 2016 with a short film that I made. I was a producer for six years prior, and I was doing line producing, so I knew every dollar that was being spent on something. And then I worked at College Humor, uh, and I was just a producer, and I didn't really have any creative input on stuff, and I just saw a bunch of missed opportunities for things, and that became ambition. It was me crying my drives to work uh, and, and home, uh, I was rehearsing this this uh, eulogy for the Thunder Road feature, but it was really fulfilling to do that in a single day. And then it, you know, it was two months of prep, but then it, it blew up. So I, I'm very lucky. Lightning struck me, and then that became how I came into the film industry. But then I'm a really bad politician. Uh, I'm a good diplomat, but I'm really bad uh, at the corporate entertainment stuff. And uh, I realized that. And so I was never very good at the handshaking and the, the you know, boardrooms and stuff glad like handing. that. Glad handing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, glad handing, thank you. Eating shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I was lucky because at that time, the internet was so useful. You could learn how to do all these things from a laptop. You still can. And then Short of the Week had just come out. I graduated in 2009 from Emerson. And so there was all of this ambition to become a staff-picked filmmaker on Vimeo. And that became this kind of landmark that all of us tried to make something that was um, cool, um, competitively cool. And that was a good ambition builder for all of us to make something. And, uh, and it worked. And then that was this whole like Vimeo generation. And now I feel like it has f become TikTok and shorter form content that people are uh, fetishizing making shorter form things than making short films or features um, like the kids I graduated with. So I think I came about at a, the kind of perfect time in the Venn diagram to be set up to make 
quality stuff. And I also had the education of seeing stuff on Short of the Week where I got a very diverse view of what people from around the world thought was culturally and socially significant filmmaking. And then that became my metronome that then I set. To You're saying that's the, stuff. they were your tastemakers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Were you in a class with the Daniels? I they, was, yeah. I, oh, I walked cool. with them at graduation. That's cool. Did they uh, have hot dog fingers? N- no, they were always the nerds in the uh, computer lab. There was like a, the Anson building had a computer lab, and they were always in there because there was like a render farm, and they could use After Effects when it was still very nascent. Um, so yeah, they were just like very tech dudes, and then uh, they were always making short films and music videos and stuff that are still on their Vimeo page. You can find their earlier stuff. It's really great. Um, their song Underwear, the, the music video for Underwear, is really, really wonderful. Um, but yeah, they were just kids that I was jealous of. All of us were, and that became ambition to make our own things. Yeah, uh, yeah I love using jealousy as a fuel for ambition, for sure. And relate, for sure. I remember it's real. Ha- like having day jobs and just being like, oh man, I would do this so differently. It'd be so great. But I'm curious, um, outside of using him using jealousy as, as uh, rage fuel um, let's hear the second uh, second answer what would you do now to break in if I was a filmmaker and I just graduated from college and I was in debt with student loans I would be very depressed and having just gone through COVID and the isolation that you feel for many years and the defeatism and the dooming feeling that comes with that and then to go through two writer strikes a writer's strike and an actor's strike, and everything seems like it's falling apart, and you should let that uh, hit hard in your mind, and to not um, be seduced or distracted from actually continuing to make stuff, even if it's small. That Mark Duplass 2015 South by keynote is really still very poignant. The cavalry is not coming. The cavalry really isn't fucking coming anymore. And you have to make stuff on your own. And it doesn't matter if it's small. If you run a GoFundMe campaign to make your movie, big people still watch small movies. Um, yeah. I, I, I just want to say, I mean, you're talking about Mark Duplass and stuff and how things are different now versus when you came up. But every, I don't know, if have, have any of you seen the Thunder Road short that Jim Cummings made? It's like a master class in, like, I think if you made that today and it had never been made, it would still get into Sundance and have a good chance of winning Sundance. It's not like things have changed that much. And so if, if is where, can you watch it on Vimeo right it's now? It's on Vimeo, yeah. Yeah, you guys should all check it out if you haven't seen it because it's, it's a one-shot film that Jim, like he said, rehearsed. It's just him doing a monologue that he rehearsed in the car on the way to and from work every day. And... It, it's like a great, if you need inspiration for like, how can I make a short that will help me break in? It's like a great example of something. You got a cool location and it's one shot and it's him just being insane. Um, I just realized three of our four people are actors. Are you, Chelsea, do you act also? Uh, Sorry, we only let the actors <laughs> speak. Oh, oh, hell no. I am strictly behind the camera. Um, awesome. Well, cool. Well, thanks for, uh, and, and feel free to comment on each other. Like sure. the hope is that you're like, you know, telling each other that you don't agree with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Or best pals either way. Yeah. yeah. Or like, yeah, yes. And three, three of you understand that Chelsea, that's like an improv thing. Um, what's, uh, what's so, so that's kind of breaking in. What's our next question? Yeah. I, I think this is a good way to pivot into the horror of it all, the genre of it all. Right. Um, because we've talked a lot about 
just the general logistics of filmmaking, but what specifically not only draws you to genre, let's say, but what makes it, uh, what's different about doing a genre project versus something a little bit more mainstream? Like what skills do you employ? How, how is it different? Yeah, and, and I mean, like feel free to be specific on how yeah. to make things scary. More like, blood could be the yeah. answer, you know? Like, I mean, I, like, like this is kind of the craft question, so feel free to be like, just close the mirror and have someone behind the person. <laughs> it's really scary. So I'll segue from what we just talked about breaking in, uh, because genre specifically, you can find an audience. So it's really good to work uh, within that to get your film made. But um, working within genre, there's a set of conventions that you just have to follow to uh, fulfill audience expectations. And so to really learn a lot of the history of it all, and then find what you can bring to it. Uh, for me specifically, it's a literary background. It's just reading, just everything. My uh, my job in high school is my dad would Pete, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, pay me to read books, and so that is how I could try to. It's um, not a real job to say. I know that's I was a, that's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it's smart. But he yeah. Did. That was the only did you thing. have to do book reports, or can you just say, yeah, I read it. I read uh, the first six encyclopedias. Oh no, he'd quiz me. Yeah, and we also got, and this is another brilliant thing I wanted to do with my kids, but he'd also pay me when I was younger to write journal entries, and then he would read it, and then he'd sign it off. It was kind of like a way to like check in with like what I was thinking about. Your dad how I was feeling about KGB. Things. I was yeah. going to say, can your dad be my dad? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I've got emotional issues, but I can read yeah. your feelings. <laughs> it wasn't like that. Um, I'm curious, your, your point about uh, genre conventions, did you ever feel beholden to them? Did, did you ever feel reined in by horror movie expectations? Was Deliver Us inspired at all by Rosemary's Baby? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, not specifically, but it, it's, it's so undeniably, like, burnt into your brain and the ethos is to then lean into those things. I think that there's freedom within structure, and so that if you can, you know, take a break and say, okay, good, I have to, like, there's roadmap of what people have done, and they've done it great before, um, you know, uh, copy that in certain instances and then build on it. Um, but do you think, sorry, just to dig uh -huh. into that, do you think, and anyone can answer this, um, do you think it's important to kind of break the horror conventions to surprise people or to scare people more? Yeah, I feel like, isn't that what we're all kind of chasing, right? Like, the one thing that's universal, comedy is different in every culture, but if fear that sort of is universal. So if you can figure out a new way to scare people, and I think that's why it's so important if you enjoy the genre to watch as much as you can, what scares you specifically. I was talking to some of the guys out there saying, you know, when I was a kid, The Shining was terrifying because things that go bump in the night. And now as a mother, the idea of like the Babadook, Goodnight Mommy, like these things are what's changed in me. And so if you can take that concept of fear and just even a small tweak, people I feel like fall head over heels for that. Um, cause it's something you haven't seen yet, or it's that, you know, the sixth sense that we were all under the impression that they were just mad at each other in a marriage for a year. And it turns out he was dead. That's brilliant. Like we hadn't thought of that, that why? Yeah. So think of something no one's thought about. No pressure. So a twist. So the kid's a ghost, close the mirror instead of opening it. Oh no, sorry. Open the mirror instead of closing it. Jim, you got any thoughts? There is no mirror. Jim, you're, I mean, your stuff... Yeah, you know, at least um, I'm trying to think of kind of the last movie of yours I saw that the fear is about 
kind of the secrets, you know? Yeah. It, it, the, the beta test is a thriller. It's like an erotic thriller or a neurotic thriller. Uh, but yeah, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, that was my first real horror movie. I'm a big fan of the genre. Uh, and it works a bit like comedy in that there's setup and payoff and punchlines. They're just scares. And I, I like horror because it's a really media literate audience. Like you can have something very small in the background and people will clock in on it. Like everybody's like so tuned in to the thing in a way that you're not with drama, like a Law and Order episode or something. Um, and so really I love that captive audience, that captive crowd. And then you can do stuff that is so much more unsanitized than any other genre. Uh, you know, you can do really graphic stuff, and there's something to, as a comedy guy, hearing an audience laugh, and it's another thing to get an audience to just gasp really loud or shriek. It's you, so you're fulfilling. You're after involuntary responses, no it's matter what. It's so yeah. much fun. It's yeah. so fulfilling. Have you guys ever had anyone poop their pants watching one of your things? No? I don't, maybe my <laughs> agent for uh, the beta test. A joke from my wife. Uh, um, uh, do uh so Jim and your, I mean, there's going to be spoiler alert. There's some spoilers here. In Jim's movie, we we see the monster. Uh, Wolf yeah. is no hollow. You know, I think we've all kind of been raised on how Jaws, and you barely ever see the the Hard shark. The shark. And, yeah. and it's like the shark didn't work. And well, how is the movie still scary without seeing the shark? What do you think, Chelsea, about seeing monsters versus like playing the tension off <laughs> off screen? Jaws would you are watch? The thing. Gi- would you watch Jim's movie, or would you? Um, oh yes, of course. But I think people are far scarier than any monster. So, <laughs> I think just humans are the way more of a monster than what we normally see is a love monster, that. traditional monster. So, so then how does that manifest in terms of like manufacturing a scare then, right? Yeah. So thinking about like what I gravitate towards, like you said in my intro a little bit that yes, I've loved the genre forever since I was 10 years old. Mine started with literary as well with like vernacular, gateway horror books, scary stories tell in the dark. Um, and then progressed from there. Um, but in terms of like looking at what truly scares me, like the movie that made me want to make horror movies was Night of the Living Dead, the original George Romero. Um, and that movie still, I just watched it last night and it still scares me to this day. Um, and crafting a scare, I think it is a universal, what, what I think what I think Jim was saying, that it is a universal thing is everyone is afraid of something. Um, and it's, I find them to, I find horror to be similar to comedy in the sense that it's all about timing, timing laughs, timing scares. Um, but it's just what people are afraid of is the different thing, but watch it. I mean, I feel spoiled because I've watched like James Wan craft a scare. I've watched like you were on set and he was like, not scary enough, more blood. Like what do you, yeah. Yeah. Like watching what's, can you give us an example? Yeah. So I was on set for, uh, Insidious 2, 3, and 4. And so s- watching, and that's James Wan, Lee Winnell, Adam Robitel, so three different, and I think, I mean, James Wan is like the most profitable and prolific genre director of all time, yeah. I think. He's um, the number one. A he's, number one, yeah. He's one of the best living filmmakers. He's yes. unbelievable. Yep. And a, one, like lovely human, wonderful. So is, so is Lee. They're quite the team. Um, but just watching him, like I remember there was a scene uh, we were shooting, it was in the further with um, Lynn Shea, and just sort of 
watching James talk to Lynn and then also talking to his DP, but also knowing editing. Like that's something I've been lucky enough to like edit my own stuff in college. So having a knowledge of editing, but knowing the pieces to shoot and what's going to work, which I do think is an art (laughs) to be able to know that, to be visualizing the scares. But, you know, just making these little adjustments, like listening to things he would say, um, and then seeing that's what ended up in the cut or seeing different cuts of those scares, the editors working on the scares, knowing Joe Bashara is going to do the score, who is an incredible composer. So just observing those things. And you know what? I've also observed directors that it doesn't quite click for and then therefore didn't work or they're trying to save it with a sting. Without naming names, can you give an example of something that you could tell wasn't clicking for them? Um yeah, when when they weren't quite, it's about communication. So when there was a disconnect, whether it was with crew or with an actor of like what was trying to be achieved or what the emotional event of the scene was, if everyone's not on the same page and sometimes like if they're rushing or whatever, but something I observed is how much time would be taken to make the scares on the ones that worked, really allowing time for it to breathe and to work Uh, giving it a chance, really working on that, which I guess is similar to when I was on set for for some of Judd's movies, like how they would be improving and just working those jokes, like really working that stuff. So, um, but that was quite, that's like, for anyone who doesn't want to go to film school, that's the education also is like, that's just stuff they don't teach you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I've just always loved the genre and have, that's why I left comedy is because I wanted to work in horror and for me personally um as a woman fear is something I live with every day and so horror to me is cathartic as Wes Craven says horror releases fear it does not create fear it releases fear and women have a relationship with blood that men will never understand agreed um do this might be an unfair question and it or unanswerable but I'm just gonna ask real quick can you all or whoever wants to uh, tell us about your favorite moment from your own work where, as an actor or a director or writer, where you just created a really great scare, and can you just kind of like like peel back the curtain? And, and, and also, did you know that it was great when you were shooting it? Yeah. Lee, you got one? I, I think the opening scene of our movie, we wanted to try to have something that was just so viscerally and profoundly evil, and I didn't realize that we were going to shoot it in a way that it was so realistic that we were going to have to make edits for the international version. It wouldn't pass the censors of Germany. Can you describe the opening? Well, so we weren't even doing anything like that. Wow. Well, it's kind of so there's a prophecy uh, on these Zoroastrian priests that have been carried and passed on in these tattoos over centuries. And uh, a certain society in our film finds these people and uh, they execute them and they they skin off the prophecy off their backs to create a book but the way that we yeah, did naturally. it naturally yeah the way that you did it just showing it in a way that i don't like uh horror films that show violence in um in a fun sort of way unless it's a comedy uh but it's like it's i want it to you want it to feel the visceral like this is wrong or this is you know not something to you know enjoy transgressive yeah yeah, yeah. Wait, how do you direct an actor to scream like that they're pain. being flayed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You just like scream harder. Yeah, we we put a lot. We put a lot. I mean, I don't want to give away something that might ruin the opening scene. Come on, it's the opening (laughs) scene. (laughs) Um, I mean, um, just the something that I I I put so much focus on on sound and music, and something that uh, the screams were then eighty yard after, so that you can control it and just compartmentalizing this is what we can control right now and get get the emotion on their faces and get it the physicality of it there and then know that in your uh, sound bible that you're going to really create that feeling with sound and and did you know were you like nailed it or did it happen later it happened later yeah yeah i feel like when you see the pieces of that it's always like eh, it's kind of it looks fake this kind of doesn't work but when you bring all the elements together like oh damn but I think Chelsea what you said like a good cut is kind of sometimes the thing that makes it work yeah I I, I was just trying to think I was like my, my second movie is Satanic Panic I call it a comedy horror because it's funny before there's not it's what's happening it's situational scary of what what's happening but I don't find it to be it's you know what's happening to this woman but they're in terms of crafting scares my first movie however is very the subject matter is incredibly dark and it's in a in a nutshell it's about um a mother who walks in on her teenage son murdering a girl and it's revealed that uh he's sort of a budding serial killer um and in order to protect her and her son, she deci- she's a geneticist, and she decides to clone the girl over and over and over again for her son to kill. Oh, my God. So he doesn't go out into the world and kill 
Um, so it's real fucked up. Um, and the the scenes with so the two actors are Aurora Paranow and is is our is our girls are Ashley and Israel Broussard who had just come off of like Happy Death Day and is everyone's like the cute boyfriend um, and he's the serial killer and um, he's Spencer and and the scenes where that are leading up to him killing her. Uh, and how they watching them prepare for that scene was pretty incredible. Like as actors taking such good care of each other for what is very violent, because um, he b- chokes her and bashes her head in. Um, it's incredibly violent. But there is a moment where we have um, we, sh- we shot each kill slightly different, and he's the last one. Um, he's looking directly into the camera, so I wanted to give that like eerie moment. But I guess like you hope it's gonna work. Uh, and if you have an editor on site and you're able to check your scenes to see if it's going to work, if you have the luxury of that, we had 15 days to make that movie. So I, I didn't, but I trusted my actors. And so that it's not necessarily a jump scare, but it's a scary, very scary character moment that I think that to me works. And the actors have trouble watching it because they like he's not used to doing that. So it's a. Uh, yeah, you you hope that it all works. You you just hope like in the edit in the edit you'll you'll know for sure. But um, uh, hopefully you have um, people that can help you along the way with that too. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm gonna modify my my kicker of a question. When did you realize it worked? Right, like if it wasn't on set, like when do, when do you get there? Uh, mine was when I looked at the dailies, like when I or when we we looked at that scene like just that shot without bad it just looking at him and he saw it and he was Israel was really freaked that, out that's, when he <laughs> that's why yeah. I was like okay we've got that's yeah, yeah, it yeah cool what about Mercedes any any scary moments I, I I would say um maybe because I'm an actress I would watch the actors that's what sort of clued me in as um as an actor you know in your bones when you like nail that scene uh, and there was one particular when she kills this boy who she blames for her son's death. Um, and that moment in her face, uh, that sold it for me. I was like, okay, that's how we know that's that take. It was just such a weird, uh, and you add just a small, it's amazing what sound can do. Just a small, sickening, like skull yeah. crunch or something. You know what I mean? That's just so off screen. Oh, yeah. Um, cause I'm, I'm of the whole vein. I love not necessarily seeing the monster because I think what we imagine is always 10 times scarier and so seeing that and her reaction is what sold it that for me I was like okay we're good that's cool and it failed miserably so I was wrong (laughs) but that's not the point uh so my I made a werewolf movie called the wolf of snow hollow a couple years ago and the whole movie was based around this one gag this like visual thing that I thought would be cool it's like Hitchcockian thing where it's like this guy's trying to track down this werewolf that's killing people in town. Actually, Kelsey's here. She's she's an actress in it. She's really great. Um, oh, hey, one Kelsey. Of the victims. Um, but uh, at the Sorry end of the film, uh, at the end of the film, there's this moment where it's like Zodiac as a comedy where it's like this guy's trying to track down. He realizes all these things that are uh, it's my character. And I'm like going to this guy's house. He's a suspect. I'm delivering evidence back to him. And uh all we know is that this guy has to be very large because the footprints are far enough apart that he's a long gate. He's probably this big guy. The whole time, one of the actors has been kind of like crouched down or sitting in his car anytime we've interviewed him. And uh, so the, the gag is uh, I ask him to stand to his full height, and he's on one side of his door, and I'm on the other, and he stands up, and his head passes the door frame. So he's like super tall. 
and it's like a really frightening moment that works. His camera just like keeps tilting up with him, and then we demeaned it by me going, "Yeah," and it's like, "Oh, and now, this is gonna be a fight scene now." And he like slams the door on me, and it's it's really good. But the way that we did it, just visually, I was like, "Oh, this could be really good." And on set, it I knew it would work. I thought it would work. The actor's really good, spooky. Um, but then when he slammed the door, everybody was like, oh, we, this is going to be a horror movie. This is going to be really good. And so, and then there was a couple of other gags that we did. Like, we, in order to make sure that the eye line worked, we put his face, his eyes, where the audience is looking, in the same, same spot for the cut where my eyes are going to be. So it feels like you're in that moment more. There's a couple of little, like, sneaks of tricks in the horror space of knowing where the audience is going to be looking. That's helpful. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I feel like there's just an element of um, whether it's effects or sound or, um, you know, a gag that horror has that most conventional films don't get that um, you conceive of, right? You think of, you're like, oh, it'd be really cool if, you know, a head explodes or whatever, whatever the gag is. But it's all so theoretical. It's like you in your garage, like mixing plaster of players or, you know, trying to make an edit work or something. And so I think when it clicks, it's that much more gratifying, right? It's like that, oh, it's the magic trick of making movies, you know? Yeah. There's not a question there, I just. I like, I like pulling out a few frames when somebody bites someone. It just seems more jarring. Like, like speed ramping, basically? Yeah, just pull out like yeah. three frames. Yeah. <laughs> little kung fu move okay last question folks um what would you like on your tombstone <laughs> no uh what's our last question uh, it's about longevity yeah it's yeah. about what you do to um to stay on the treadmill and like um maybe looking forward to the future the the nature of the industry and maybe what what you're thinking about next yeah and and you can either say kind of like what like how you've stayed I mean you're all professional filmmakers which you know it's, it's really hard to be like a lot of us have day jobs doing not being filmmakers and kind of our hobbyist filmmakers but you guys kind of do it for a living um, like how, how do you keep going year after year and you can either answer it as like kind of your overall philosophy on it um, or about literally what your next yeah, move is it, it's, it could be either business or spiritual you know or maybe both Mercedes, you got anything? Lee? Yeah, uh, I'm blanking. You want to go real quick? <laughs> yeah, a lot of hard gulps um, over tough. here. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, for the vast majority of my life in the film industry, I, I haven't made money from making movies. It's been side hustles and doing stuff. Like, I make, I make more money as an actor because of the, like, union rules than I ever would as a writer. I think I like gifted the script to the production company so I would never get paid as a writer or like barely get paid as an actor on my own movies. Like it's really just whatever you can get to keep making stuff. I always had day jobs, always had side things. Do you think you're acting I mean you by the way, I loved you in Barry. You guys have seen Barry, spoiler alert. Jim plays Barry. Yeah. Um it's crazy. Yeah. It's so weird. It's the last awesome. five minutes of the show. It's so bizarre. Anyway, I, love it. I was like, yeah, what the Jim fuck Cummings? is he doing in there? He ruined uh, the show. No, but do you think, do you think some of your acting roles in kind of like an HBO show comes from 
people having seen you in your own oh, it's movies? A, yeah, Bill saw Thunder Road on an airplane. And he's going to London, and we had like made this airline deal with British Airways, and he saw it, and he was like, oh, who the fuck is this guy? I'm going to call him up. And now he's a buddy. And then like it took, I auditioned for the one of the parts in the pilot, and I didn't get it, and it ate at me for like four years. And then he saw the film in the interim, and then was like, hey, man, I think I need you to come out for a couple of days and do this thing. I think it'd be funny. You can't tell anybody. Uh, but no, he's just like a cinephile from Tulsa. The, like, I think probably 100% of the acting jobs that I get is just from people who have seen the stuff that I've done. It's never, uh, I have 111 self tapes. I did the, the math the other day. I've, I have a wow. 0% success rate. That's a palindrome. Rate. <laughs> yeah. So I've never, never from auditioning. It's, it's always just from making stuff and putting it on, on the internet. But uh, but wait, what was the question? The question well, was well, that's a, that's a good business plan, oh, right? Uh, yeah, essentially I, I think, though, right? I think everything's falling apart and nobody knows what's going on, and everybody's acting like it's still the early two thousands. But uh, in the last five years, there are movies that have won Best Picture that have had like a VFX team of three people, four people. Like, I think the internet is a really wonderful resource, and anybody can come out of anywhere and make something that Warren did VFX on Nomadland. Yeah. yeah, and then all the for, effects a, on no a, for instance, right? You know, it's like Oscar it, winner. It's very tangible, and you, the, some of the business model is ignoring the seduction and the distractions from actually doing the thing. So I made two short films in January that I'm proud of, um, and I just kind of keep bullying my team into helping out. I'm very lucky that people want to keep making stuff with me. Um, I don't know. What, whatever you can. doesn't matter if it's big or small. Just keep making shit and learning. Just shoot it. Just shoot it. I think the landscape's changed. We used to have this sort of, you know, divide, right? You're an actor. You're, you do film or you do TV. You're a producer or you're a writer. You're this or you're that. And I think that's all been muddied um, in a most beautiful way. And I think, like you said, you can raise money on GoFundMe. You can have an iPhone and shoot anything. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chelsea, but like working with executives, I feel like they don't have a vision. You can write the most incredible thing, but until you show them something, it doesn't mean anything. So even if you just write a five minute short and you go, here's my idea, here's what I can do, here's what I have, if nothing else, even if they're like, you're just awful, please leave, leave us alone, you've learned something from making that and you make enough, that confidence I think is what, what it does. As an actor, I could not know what I'm saying at all. But as soon as I have that confidence, it's like, this is my job. Just give it to me. <laughs> they do. It's a weird thing. They just want confident people who say, I've done this. I'm confident. Here's my idea. You're going to want to hire me. Trust me. I don't know why. It's some weird psychological thing in Hollywood. Just do it. Get something on paper and be willing and open to do anything. Like Go from actress to writing to directing to raising money to... Get it all because it's so intermixed now. It would it would behoove you to do so, just so that you can keep the longevity. I'll piggy I'll piggyback off that. The multi hyphenate um, used to be a dirty word, and now is a must almost. Um, and I mean, I, this industry is really hard. <laughs> this is a, every single movie you watch is a miracle. Every movie is a miracle. Um, because you think of how many movies or projects you work on that you can, you just are trying to like almost will it into existence in a way. Um, but you'll, you know, always working on multiple things, 
put eggs in multiple baskets with multiple people because um, you never know what's going to stick. And there's going to be something that never, there's going to be things you love that are never going to get made. And you work on something, especially as a director, you're working on something from, if you wrote it, from conception until it's like on a shelf in a Walmart or on a streaming platform. So you're with it that entire journey where the, every single other person is going to go off and work on something else. So you're also not going to get paid for your work until you're like basically on set if you didn't write this script. Um, uh, so it's, it's yeah, multi-hyphenates doing lots of different jobs. Um, but sort of, again, what Mercedes was saying is that uh, you, you have to uh, make the execs see what your project is. So you can't just send a script. You need the script. You need a lookbook. You need a boardomatic. You need a sizzle reel. You need to have talent attached because some companies are say we don't package, but if you attached all these actors, then we'll give you a million dollars. So yourself. So you do all this. And then, yeah, you know what? We don't like that actor. So we change our minds. We're not going to make... Could I, I might be speaking from experience, but um, it's really hard. And something I tell, um, I do a lot of talks at colleges um, and students that are all different majors that might be taking a film class or two. I was like, listen, if you want to make movies with every cell in your body, do it. But if there is any doubt, there are so many things you could be doing to f just follow your bliss. And there are also hundreds of positions on movies. It doesn't have to be a director. It doesn't have to be a producer. But if you learn editing, VFX, cinematography, line producing, whatever, those are positions that always, always need filled. And so you can still be a part of an important part of making movies, um, but not necessarily the position that's going to be killing your soul every two months. Um, but you just have to want it with every every inch of your being. And also going to reiterate something that I live by is um, a quote from the great Patton Oswalt that is, it's chaos, be kind. Kindness, kindness, kindness. Okay, so I'm glad I waited. Uh, <laughs> I, I, knew, I knew I wanted to answer this question because uh, properly. Uh, I think finding the work-life balance, that is something I'm still working on. But I noticed when I did that, then my career started happening so much more, and I was happier. Uh, and Because um, filmmaking can uh, encourage a lot of really unhealthy habits. And so finding a way to uh, have hobbies or uh, friends outside of the industry... Um, that a lot of the times that can also <laughs> help your uh, filmmaking. Not Mine is it. music, and then I ended up producing. And beer, right? And, you do beer. And beer, yeah. That one's great. Uh, That's a very niche audience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, brewing beer is like a very um, therapeutic. Almost, it's like cooking. It's like four hours, eight hours of just, you know. Um, that's kind of my thing. Yeah. Actually, you said, Leroy, you said something earlier that I wanted to reiterate is you talked about supporting your friends work that they're doing that is so important and I think really gets overlooked because um, we're as a community of filmmakers something that fuels my fire is seeing my friends succeed in this industry even especially like we just went through like Jim was saying just went through a pandemic a time where it was like really hard to make movies when it's hard anyways um, and going out there and supporting your friends I just want to reiterate that and how 
important that is because we're all in it together and it's like we need each other's support yeah you see friends get upset about a friend doing well you're like no now we know him and he can help us do this why why are you doing like there's enough of the pie exactly there's enough of the pie and make it a daily habit i mean look at right now with the strike and the pandemic you could sit and go oh god what should i do what or just 10 minutes right five minutes look at i don't know acting things no something because your brain it's a muscle right like whatever it is just keep at it keep at it i think if you genuinely put that energy out there that's where things flow yeah i will say we ask this longevity question a lot because matt and i like we're we're pretty tired we (laughs) no like we honestly want to know the answer because we you know we get discouraged a lot and i do think like something people never talk about is like if you were an engineer or you were a doctor or you were a lawyer, you had a regular job, like you would go to your company and they'd be like, hey, we're going to set up this 401k for you. We're going to match every dollar you put in, we're going to put in, you know, you're going to have two weeks of vacation so you and your family can go do something. You're going to have paternity leave and maternity leave. And in our business, I mean, we're basically all freelancers. You know, you might be on a show for a few months or you might be making a movie for a couple months, but then you're kind of looking for the next job. And we, like nobody ever tells filmmakers like, oh, you should start a 401k or you should start, start SEP IRA. You should invest in property. But like for me, at least the older I get and having kids and a family and a mortgage, like I realize like the stuff outside of film is so important to, you know, I'm now in my very early 40s. But uh, like, you you know, you try to imagine like when you're in your 60s, like, are you still going to be hustling and competing and working all weekend and flying to Ohio to do a short film? Like it's it's not super sustainable. So I think like. To me, like one thing I've just been thinking a lot about lately is just rounding out your life, even like from a financial point of view. I mean, some of us are probably getting like NCIS residuals and stuff, but uh, the rest of us like we're kind of job gig to gig trying to support ourselves and and um, kind of balancing that and, you know, realizing like, hey, like the, this other big thing I realized is like I have kids. I like working with other people with kids because then you can say like, hey. I got to pick up my kid. They're sick from school. And if you're working with like a bunch of 20 year olds that don't have kids, they're like, what the fuck oh, is wrong whatever, with this guy? Man. Yeah. Um, and so there's something about kind of working with people also like close to your age or your lifestyle and stuff that will, will help them understand you and you understand them and being sympathetic to each other. And um, to me, that's like something I've just been thinking a lot about longevity, but also we asked that question because we want to know how how we've been in this business for almost 20 years and how can we do another 20 years or maybe even 40 years, you know, and not go crazy and piss off everyone in our life. So um, I, I, I'm just supporting what you're saying, Lee, Roy, about just the, the balance of life is just so important the longer you do this. It was a great question. It's probably the best one because I feel you. I think every filmmaker that I know goes through exactly what you're talking about. And I think there's a confusion between work to live and live to work that when you start out, <laughs> you have to live for your work. And it's like, maybe I, maybe I work just to live my life and uh, then figure out all the things that are going to keep me from going crazy in this business and doing the things that refuel your fire. But sort of that balance shifted for me, like in my 20s, it was like, oh, no, I got to like die from my art. And now I'm like... I love my art, but I also love my life and I need to balance. It's all about balance. You don't, I don't think you're as wise to that when you're younger and then you burn out and do a lot of crying in your car and reevaluate everything and, uh, 
try to take care of your uh, self-care. Try to take care of your mental health. <laughs> totally. Jim, you got something? No. I mean, I'm, I'm just... Um, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm a really bad advocate for work-life balance because I don't I I'm happy and I meditate and I garden and I do all these other things that are enriching. I have friends outside of the film industry. I don't have like, you know, real crazy ambitious stuff anymore. But a lot of the listeners probably do, and they probably are doing the same wave that we did 10, 15 years ago, and they're you know struggling. They're um, they're in the grind, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're in I, that I think, moment. I think. For me, longevity is incredibly important, and we are all very comfortable that we can continue to move at half the pace because we have children, because we have lives and families and everything that we have to support. Um, but a lot of young people are just as crazy ambitious as as we were. I can't quit. I'm a really I'm insane. Um, it's bad. Uh, <laughs> but uh, really, I think you know I uh, the best advice that I could give for longevity is never imagine that if you knock on somebody's door, they're gonna help you out. You have to get somebody to knock on your door. And so by making stuff on your own, even if it's very small and it becomes popular, then people will notice you. And um, that's been how I've had a, a longer career than most. Yeah, I, I wonder also if the older we get, the more power we give to gatekeepers or other stakeholders, or you start doing more work for hire, right? You start getting, paid and you know um that some of that initial spark goes away because you're on gigs rather than that you know short film with your friends in the weekends and maybe that's another part of it right is like remembering why you got into this business in the first place um but uh i we're getting a little late i want to make sure that we make time for uh some questions 15 minutes of questions who here has a question Feel free to not have a question. Oh, Drew, Brett, yeah, yeah. you guys. Andy Young, way in the back. Oh, yeah. Reliable question Shout asker. And we'll, we'll repeat it, Andy. Yeah, come on down. Come on down. Yeah. Do not fall in the pool. Uh, the Sawhorse folks have requested. Yeah, yeah. Everyone sign a waiver, and we, we told them everyone did. Hi. Um, you guys talked a little bit about post-production, but I've always been curious with horror films about the pre-production of post-production when it comes to are you working with your editor that early on telling them movies that you want them to watch or are you doing any kind of pre-visualization, especially for, say, more complex uh, setups when it comes to kind of more horror action kind of stuff? I've always been kind of curious about that with the horror side of things. Andy's just looking for an excuse to watch more movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just anything. Uh, just tell me what to watch. Uh, broadly, yes. Usually we do like cast and crew screenings for people to like kind of say, oh, these are other movies that inspired this thing. Oh, look at how cool that lensing is. That could be neat. And then I usually do a podcast of the movies. So like I'll do a screenplay uh, and then I'll record all of the parts and put music and sound design underneath it. So at least every member of cast and crew can hear what the movie's going to be like so that we all kind of come to set with an understanding of the cadence or the comedy, the punchlines, tone, how things move. And that's been really helpful. So like so much of the work that we do is done in pre-pro uh, and I edit my movies. So it's like we kind of know what it's going to be and it's important. Jim, I have a follow-up question, because you mentioned that uh, a handful of times in public, and I am personally doing that as well. Fuck yeah. Um, do you do all the voices? Yeah. For the Thunder Road feature, 
I wanted to do previs. I want to make sure they would work, and so I play the nine-year-old girl. You play the, everybody. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do but, you do voices? Uh, a little bit. I'll lighten it for a, a girl's voice. I never like pit, change the pitch in post mm-hmm. or something like that. But I grew up listening to the Harry Potter audiobooks, and mm-hmm. Jim Dale can do like Hermione do and Hagrid yeah, yeah. in the same scene, and the listener fills in the blanks in their brains. It's like, oh, that's just Hagrid and Hermione talking. You never think about, you know, this seventy-five-year-old Jim Dale in a booth recording the thing. Um, I was in a closet when I did it. I was like in this like quiet space with my sweaters around me. Um, but no, I think everybody should do it. It's a really great previs, and it as a writer as well, it's helpful because you're like, ah, this scene's taking too long. Uh, these scenes should be actually just one. Uh, fuck it, I'll, I'll change that. And you can actually, if you have the screenplay format up, it's really helpful to like change it in real time. And everything is so visual, right? I'm sorry if you were about to talk. Everything is so visual. You know what you have in your head. You have it, right? Like you wish you could just sort of that that out. And it's so much easier visual, whether that's cut out pictures, whether that's the lookbook, whether that's you create a little sizzle with other, I can't tell you how many times with other films that I've cut together just so that there's no misunderstanding because there's nothing more disheartening than you sit in that editing bay with the first run through and you're like, this is so far <laughs> from what I wanted. And it's that's just miscommunication. So you can avoid all that. The more info, the more info you just ram down everyone's throats. Uh, I usually like know when I'm in prep, know the editor I want to work with. So my first movie was an editor who had worked on my shorts and had done a lot of TV because we were on a very tight schedule and I knew she could work very quickly. And for my second movie, I wanted a comedy editor because there was so much comedy um, in the movie. And I had one of the editors that I knew when I worked for Judd. He came out of the kindness of his heart to cut this movie, to cut that movie. And uh, I do, I basically work with my DP really, really early on because we're friends too. Um, And we will shot list and storyboard the entire movie before we shoot. Um, And we just adjust it to the locations because who knows when we'll location scout. But then we'll... Uh, give all of those. We'll, we'll, sometimes we'll shoot it out with these little models. If we're not, there's programs that do this now. This was before those existed. Um, but we'll give all of that to the department heads, the editors, everybody. So they will literally have a Bible of every single shot and what it's going to look like. When you say models, though, what do you mean specifically? Like little, like literally. Like Legos or like Barbies? Yeah, basically. Or like, yeah, like, yeah. like these, cool. there's these, like uh, things artists use to pose little figures. Oh, and like, the, the, like the yes, wooden maquettes yes. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah and yeah, we have cool. sets built that are all magnetic and we just move them around and we just boop take a picture there's an app called aperture that literally you can say the lens you want to use all of that stuff and then you just hand this big bible to it's also good for producers to see um and then you end up you know maybe you're lucky if you get to shoot three out of ten of those but um just as much as you can do in advance and but at the end of the day the editor is who uh can can put put your movie together. I've seen editors save scenes. Like it's pretty incredible. And again, like I said before, very underrated positions. <laughs> uh, so again, I'm real big on sound and music. And before we made the film, we uh, locked in Brent Kaiser, who did sound for everything, everywhere, all at once. So he's just brilliant. Um, so we had those d- uh, discussions about what we would want to do. Uh, we didn't know our composer yet, but an idea of it, so that then we would have, uh, like I say, this Bible or manifesto of the sound that we would make sure that we created the real estate for him to then work with later on and kind of at least have an idea of what's going to be there. That's awesome. 
my dream is to have like a composer make music before I shoot a film and then you're like playing it on set, you know, mm-hmm. or even just cutting to it. So you're not putting in temp, yeah, temp score that then you fall in love with. Right. Yeah. Because the composers really hate that. Um, any other questions? Yeah, come on down. Maybe let's form a line if you if you guys wouldn't mind. Yeah. Or, there. You were talking about <laughs> composers. To encourage people, uh, Warren. Uh, Leroy, you said you're a musician, but if the rest of you are or aren't, how do you speak to composers uh, in non-musical terms? I, I struggled with this with my first movie, um, which that handsome gentleman wrote who just asked the question. Um uh, I did not know how to do that because I love music and I made a Spotify playlist and knew what I wanted it to sound like and knew the composer I wanted. Um, and I, because I didn't know all the music terms, I spoke an emotion. I wanted to, I want to feel this during this scene. Uh, and he knew exactly what I was talking about. Um, but obviously as I started like it was a little easier on my second movie because I had that experience and he kind of held my hand through it. And he's like, Oh, so you wanted to sound like this? I was like, yes. And so he helped me gain that, that vocabulary. But for me, it's, uh, yeah. Emotions. How you want, how you want your audience to feel at that moment. That was for me at least. I struggled with the two. I literally was like, okay, so I want like, (laughs) and then, and then, and then like, and then, you know what I mean? He's like, no, (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. So like a heartbeat, right? But then from like a robot, he's like, please stop. So then he just did it. And then I went through and I went, oh, okay, a little more of this, a little more. That is my, that is my weak, weak. I know what I want. I don't know how to express it. Just hum John Williams melodies. Uh, I worked with a really wonderful composer named Ben Lovett on the werewolf movie. He's fucking great. He's done a bunch of really awesome movies. And uh, he's from North Carolina. He has this little studio. And I was asking for so much. And he was like, we have a couple of players. There is like no, there's no way we're going to get a giant fucking provokia of like, bom, 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 like and but he delivered. He like, d- you know, found a way to, to make it sound big. Um, so it was a lot of that, just like me shouting. And, uh, and then he came came to the mix, so there were moments where he was in Pro Tools in his laptop trying to get my neurotic like needs met, and then we'd like move on to the next scene and then come back to it. It was like a really collaborative, fun experience where he and I were both like standing on our feet and shouting at each other, and then uh, and it, that became the, the musical score of the movie. It was fun. That's awesome. Uh, so yeah, you use temp music uh, a lot of the times, but there's a... If you talk to people in sound, it's kind of a joke because a lot of the times filmmakers use the same music. So to just get an idea of what it's going to be, uh, certain filmmakers uh, or um, composers can work off that and then um, you know make it their own. But in this film, what ended up happening is that he's just such an original, like out there uh, musician that it wouldn't work for him to try and craft it. We just, we basically wrote this like two pages of just everything for five different songs. And we said, just use this as inspiration to make pieces of music that are, that resonate with you and that you'd be proud to put out into the world as solo pieces. And then we will craft those into the film and we'll get a great uh, music editor. And that's then how we did it with that one. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like I sometimes, when I have the opportunity to get something composed, it's almost harder because you're so used to 
going to a sound library and digging through and finding all of the different tracks and then kind of crafting it around. You start getting a, scared. It's a not going to be that good. piece of music that's already there, right? And then you're mm-hmm. like, okay, well, if if I could have anything, well, I don't know what I want, right? Like, and or or, or even less that, but more like, how do you put an edit together that complements that original piece without knowing literally what it is, you know? Yeah. I remember this editor, Matt Barber, he's been on the podcast. He would tell me it's better to edit with film scores as temp than like songs because film scores kind of have that rhythm of a scene built into them. And you'll start your scenes will start falling into like a rhythm of like tension and release and things. Um, I don't know. Did you ever see uh, the TV show Garth Marenghi's Dark Place? Uh, there's a Garth Marenghi's the writer, director, and actor of the thing. It's a it's really funny. You should see it. But one of the opening titles is original score, uh, or no, uh, musical score originally whistled by Garth Marenghi. <laughs> That's awesome. I think we have time for one more question, and then feel free to attack these people while we hang out. Thank you for your insight. I was wondering what place, if any, you think new vertical video platforms have in both supporting your horror film projects, especially ones that are maybe more found footage and more aligned with kind of UGC type um, content, and then also in building your own brand as a director or maybe putting pieces out that, you know, would do that job of getting noticed? None. <laughs> Somebody claps. I was. I, I thought I was mean. Um, no, I'm so sorry. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I think because vertical is structured the way that it is and movie theaters are structured in landscape um, and like most televisions are structured in landscape and not portrait, I think as of now, I don't, I could not imagine doing that. Like, I know that there are some filmmakers that look at like the sphere and like, oh, this could be such a cool thing. You can tell a story in a completely different way. And I think that is exciting, but I'm just trying to incorporate vertical stuff into the stuff that I'm doing that's landscape. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm- what about from a self-promotion perspective or a brand, right? Because it's kind of, it's a two-part question. It's like, what do you do with vertical artistically? And then do you leverage it? Yeah, I remember when you guys were promoting Wolf of Snow Hollow, you guys made all sorts of really cool artwork and animations that played really well into social formats. Yeah, I mean, that's... So I feel like that it works in marketing of, like, capturing an audience's... It takes up the full screen of their phone, and it's how their eyeballs see it. Um, And so that makes sense. If you're running Facebook ads or Instagram ads, it's nice to do something in portrait because it takes up more of the screen. That's just... You know the neuroscience of how people look at stuff on a screen on their phone. Um, so yeah, that 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 works. Um, and there are like Danny Madden just put out a movie and he did his own like animation that was vertical, that's gnarly, that was like hand drawn and also incorporates the poster. It was, it was neat. Um, it does work, but that's just the functionality of the marketing and the structure of the thing. I, so they're two separate forms in your mind. Yeah. 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 Cool. And are you guys fuck with vertical? <laughs> I can't really speak to that aside from like doing things on Instagram and then they make me redo it. So it's landscape. So it's it's uh, or, or horizontal. But I think, you know, I mean, talking about genre, what is a found footage look like when everyone's recording on their phone if they're holding it vertically? Like there's there's place to ex- there's a way to explore that. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily for me to do. I, I almost feel too old for it. Um and but in terms of like prom- brand brand, um, 
obviously when it's when I say Chelsea Stardust, uh, when I think about what me as a director, what do I want? What stories do I want to tell? What do I want my work to represent? That's something I'm always thinking about, especially when I'm reading material. And like, what is my, you know, because there's so much, I hate the word brand and branding. And what's your, you know, what's your brand as a director? Because someone just wants to use that to try to sell you, you know. Um, and I, for me, it's like, what stories speak to me? But I think if someone was to say, like, what is, what is your brand of, filmmaking like what do you gravitate towards and basically the main thing is because I love all subgenres of horror um I've noticed that um women are just always in the forefront so it's just uh whether it's an antagonist protagonist those are the stories I personally gravitate towards so um but also exploring flawed characters and um and things like that so that's like, you know, it's a tricky thing to navigate, especially when everyone's looking at Instagram numbers and X numbers and all of that. Um, it's kind of annoying. Uh, anyone who doesn't have social media presence, I have such respect for. Uh, but it's a tr it's it's tricky to navigate. Um, so if anyone's able to master it, please contact me and give me pointers. <laughs> I will say, I think Matt and I probably do a, a good amount of vertical video just because we work and we do a lot of advertising. And it's to me, it's a format. It's just hard for us old people to like figure it out. But I've seen other people do amazing stuff in it. So I think it's an awesome format. I just I'm not good at it personally, but I, I want to be good at it. I'm great at it. Yeah, but I'd rather shoot, you know, anamorphic I, or whatever. I asked this genuinely, like, do we want to be Brandon? Do you want to be? Do, do you want to? Yes, Jim See told you I mean? he wants people I to knock right? on his like, door. I, I will want because they want to put they want to put, put, put you in a box. box. Yes, yeah. so if you keep surprising, isn't yeah. that sort of what you break the brand? Don't do the brand. No, you, Dude, you, you think that's the end of the way. Christopher Walken. Brand I works. I, I think so long as it's it's craftsmanship. Like if you yeah. wanted to do comedy, that's fine. So long as it's like that, it's more about your craftsmanship in film. The fact that you can do both at once is really impressive, and you could probably you have done both separately. So it's like it is it is possible to do that. The thing that should be the brand is that you make re good stuff, good movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah and we'll say it. the Wes Anderson brand. It's a little played out. That's true. <laughs> right. Um, before we we go, I got a. A pretty serious 10-1 situation going on here. So maybe we can uh, just give everyone, uh, if people want to find out more about you. Are you on Instagram? I mean, I know you all are because I tagged you I am on Instagram and Twitter. What, uh, what's, your, what's your handle? Uh, just my name. L-E-E-R-Y-K-U-N-Z. Leroy Coons. Cool. Chelsea? Uh, only Instagram at Chelsea Stardust. Only Instagram, Mercedes Mason, the car, the jar. <laughs> I'm on Instagram and Reddit and Twitter as Jimmy C. That's me. Jimmy C. That's me. Cool. You what about Letterboxd, Jim? Oh, I'm also on Letterboxd. Yeah, I love Letterboxd. <laughs> all about Letterboxd. Yeah, it's the best. Our podcast would be like four minutes shorter every week if we didn't have to talk about Letterboxd. <laughs> this guy from all the name banter. Maybe we cut Sorry. that too. <laughs> uh, if you want to follow us, we're at Just Shoot a Bond. I'm at O. Kaplan. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow across all social media, especially Letterboxd. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore, who Thanks, wishes Noah. he could be here. We love you, Noah. You guys should Noah. all follow him. Noah Bayshore, B-A-S-H-O-R-E. I don't know why, but Bayshore. 
Um, and uh, yeah, our producer is Tyler Small. You're listening to music from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. We will edit it in, folks. It'll make sense once you hear it. And uh, uh, that's it. Thanks, everyone. Thank thanks you, for everyone. Thanks to Sawhorse, Fresh Brothers. Have some cold pizza everyone, and our some panel. cold beer, everyone. Thank you. And check out Deliver Us. Whatever Chelsea's got coming up next, whatever Mercedes coming got coming up next, and Jim, are you promoting anything? Uh, two new shorts. Two new shorts. Check out two new shorts. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.